I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 162 of the Intercooler podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Now, it's early summer in Europe, which must mean it's 24-hour race season. Um, So that's what we're talking about this week. Um, Before we get onto that, let me just remind you, as I do every week, please, to rate and review the podcast. It's really important. Um, And while you're doing it, just hit the follow button or the subscribe button on whichever app you're using. Um, That just takes seconds, um, and it means you won't miss an episode of the Intercooler podcast, and it means that we find a bigger audience. Um, So please do that. Thank you very much, and enjoy the episode. With the Nürburgring 24 hours just gone, and the 100th anniversary edition of Le Mans coming up in a couple of weeks, seems like a good idea, a good time, to talk about 24-hour racing. Yeah. Right? And we're going to do how to win a 24-hour race. Yes. And how not to win a 24-hour race. Yes. Um, We're going to talk about what it takes to win one of these epic events, and just how wrong, despite all your best efforts, it can go. Yeah. And we're going to basically use Le Mans as the sort of event to represent all 24-hour yeah, yeah. events. Yeah. Um, now, we're going to start with how to win one of these things. And I'm not talking here from a place of experience. <laughs> I've never won a 24-hour race. I've, I've actually... never won a 24-hour race. I've been in a few. <laughs> yes. So okay. I've never won one. I've done, I've done a 24-hour kart race. Oh, okay. Years and years ago. We, my team, we were utterly shambolic, um, and I, it was actually one of the more miserable things I've ever done. It just seems to go on and on and on. I tried to do one once, and I got so exhausted so yeah. early on, I just gave up, and everybody else just took it on, and I'm sure it was a 24-hour one, but I was just, I got so tired. Yeah. I don't think I could do more than about 40 minutes in it, and then I was just completely ruined. It's a very particular type of fitness karting. Yeah. So and if, if you're doing a 45 minutes. And also, if you're a big bloke, yeah. like I am, um, you know, 16 stone on a good day. Um, you're not doing the power to weight race if you can't any good at all. No. No. Fair that was enough. my excuse for being so slow anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what are the... Let's just rattle through some of the fundamentals, the basics that need to be in place if you're going to win a 24-hour race. Finish it. You, to finish first, first you've got to finish. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the only 24-hour races in which I've ever come anywhere at all, and I think the best I did was... P4 in the Silverstone 24 hours in, I think, 2015 in a GT4 Aston Martin. Um, 
we just trundled around. We were not fast at all. Oh, really? No. The only person we had on our team who was fast was Alice Powell, who mm. is now a star of what was Formula E. Formula W, sorry. No, was it w, w Series. W Series. W Series. Um, and there was myself and there was um, Aston's then CEO, Andy Palmer, myself and Marek Reichman, their current design director, and Alice. And so basically, three middle-aged amateurs and someone who actually knew what she was doing. Mm. Um, and that point, Alice wasn't in the car. We just kind of trundled around and didn't crash. Uh, and we came somewhere. I mean, yeah. you know, she was very fast when she was in it, and that was great. Um, and that's, you know, certainly historically speaking, that's what you had to do. It's mm. the reason that people like Sterling Moss hated doing Le Mans, because they didn't consider it to be a proper motorist, because they weren't flat out. They were just trying to get round. These days, they build the machines to survive basically anything yeah so you can't just trundle around you've got to go flat out from the start because mm. what you know is that if you don't someone else will and they'll win it mm. so you've just got to throw caution to the wind and just absolutely go but i mean but that's quite a a recent thing yeah certainly through the vast history of a race like lamar um it was a race of attrition i mean sometimes you would get you know in 1970 the first win for porsche um there were 55 cars entered, 51 cars started it, and seven finished. Only seven? Only seven. Blimey. Um, it was actually one of the things I was going to talk about. you know. And Richard Atwood, he chose, deliberately chose, because he'd done so well the year before, uh, in the night which, which broke with a, a lead of several laps with 21 hours to go, he got to choose what car he was in and who he'd drive it with. So he chose a 4.5-litre 917, when he could, we could have had a 5-litre car, and he chose a 4-speed gearbox, when he could have had a five, and he chose Hans Hermann, who was a you know, a capable sports car driver, but absolutely no superhero, mm. because he just thought, we need some, a combination that's going to get us around. And all his teammates went for five-litre cars and Formula mm. One drivers and five-speed gearboxes, and they broke and he didn't. Mm. That's what you have to do. QED. Yeah. So, I mean, that was 1970, and it is a different discipline now, isn't it? And I remember talking to Ollie Gavin about this. Back in 07, 08, um, the Corvette factory driver... Um, and I, it was the first time I'd been to Le Mans and I naively said to him, so I understand that it's, um, you're not going as hard as you can. And he said, ah, no boy, we are. Now, of course, they are thinking about tyre life. They are thinking about fuel usage. They are thinking about not destroying the car. Yeah. If you do any of those things, your race is over. If you're in the pits too often because you're burning through tyres, you're burning through fuel, yeah. you're going to okay, lose. But what they're not doing anymore is watching their revs. Yes. Um, what they're not doing is particularly being careful over curbs. All mm. these things which would have just destroyed races mm. um, for cars in the past. The cars are so robust. Mm. They, are des- they, they are designed, to, if that's what you choose to do, to be driven flat out for 24 hours. Mm. Mm. So they are going as fast as they can while, to some degree, thinking about tyre usage, thinking about fuel usage. Yeah. But, so, but that's all stra- that's, the, the difference is that's about strategy. That's yeah. not about making sure your car finishes. Mm. That's just about making sure that you... Yes complete the race in the quickest time possible mm. um which as we all know is partly about going fast and it's also partly about you know minimizing the number of pit stops you have to do fuel stops you have to do and, and so on and so forth mm. but in terms of the preservation of the car the cars are designed to go flat out well that's it there you go that's one of the the key things that you need to win a 24-hour race a car that will go flat out reliably and actually it's probably the reliability that's the yeah. most impressive thing isn't it mm. they it is thousands of miles that they do over a 24-hour race at the N24 just gone, they did, it was a record distance, 162 laps, 15.7 mile lap, because it's the Nordschleife and the Grand Prix circuit. That's more than 2,500 miles. 
yeah. going very, very fast. More than like 2,500 miles on a circuit which doesn't... It's okay, it's got one straight, but most of it is yes. just... All of that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing. And it was one, and and also, you know, uh, hats off to the Frigadelli Ferrari. Yeah. Um, quite poignant, really. Yeah. Um, because Frigadelli was Sabine Schmidt's team, and Ferrari, first team in 20 years, non-German team to win that race in 20 years. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. It's and the first been, Ferrari win as well. First Ferrari win. Um, just brilliant. Yeah. A 296 GTB. Yes, GT3, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there you go, you need a fast and reliable car. Presumably, now this is relative, isn't it? Because the guys who are driving these factory cars are phenomenally quick. Um, and the car cannot be on such a knife edge or so tricky to drive that the drivers are making mistakes. However, I'm sure if I drove that car, I'd find it a nightmare. Yeah, but I mean, again, these days, you know, there was an era where, you know, Le Mans used to be the preserve of the gentleman driver mm. and cars had to I be mean, one of the things that Porsche was so good at, um, which they just don't have to do anymore, is they used to, particularly when they're selling customer cars, customer 956s and 962s, is there was this thing about the least reliable component of the yeah. car is the bit that sits in the seat and hangs onto the steering wheel yeah. and of the pedals. Yeah. And so you've got to make sure that he, because it almost always was a he, um, has as good a chance of not making a mistake as possible. Mm. That's why they had synchronous gearboxes. Mm. That's why they started on a key. That's why they thought really hard about things like ventilation. Mm. Um, none of these things, actually, the synchronous gearbox slowed the car down. Mm. Um, but yeah, nothing like as much as you know taking the edge off a dog box gear and losing third gear for the rest of the race. Mm. Um, and and that's what they had to do in the era of gentleman drivers. But these days, with paddle shifts and professionals, you don't need to think about that sort of stuff at all. Mm. Clearly, you need a team that runs like clockwork, great strategy, slick pit stops, that's a given. Um, but you also need three or four drivers, depending on which race it is, who are prepared to work as a team, don't you? Yeah. You don't need any solo heroes out there. And that, and that is the amazing thing about um, people who do that. It's, it's why so few Formula One drivers, really good Formula One, have turned out to be really good at Le Mans mm. because they might be really really quick over a lap but the, the the mindset is so different because you get into a Formula 1 car it's just you and against everybody else and you know that when the race is over you know an hour and a half two hours later they'll take the car to pieces and that. you get into a Le Mans car all you must be thinking about is the person who's going to get in the car after you you've mm. got to bring it back it's got to be in the right car and it's a completely different mind. and if you talk to you know, multiple the more winners, guys like, I don't know, Tom Christensen, Derek Bell. They're, they're just, more than us, they're just such nice people. Mm. And I don't think that's a coincidence because, you know, if they're not sort of collegiate, inclusive and happy to work as a team, if they are these, you know, I think to be a superstar in Formula One, a Michael Schumacher and Ayrton Senna and Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton, you have to be so single-minded. Mm. And it is you against everybody else. Uh, you know, basically the difference is in Formula One, your closest rival, your greatest rival is your teammate. Mm. Mm. Whereas in sports car racing, he's your ally. He's your best friend, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. Okay, let me put this to you. The Fernando Alonso of 2007. Yes. Did you ever see him being a Le Mans winner? No. no. But the Fernando Alonso of today, he seems a totally reformed character, yes. doesn't he? Yes, and also I think there are always exceptions that prove, prove rules. And I think that there yeah. are yes, people who can just adapt. Mm. Um, and he does, he, he, but yes, he is a completely different human being mm. as well. If you think about the Fernando Alonso who had that spat with Lewis and yeah. McLaren in 2007. Yeah. Um, and he's now just so chilled, isn't he? Mm. Yet he's lost none of his speed. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think that 
someone will come on and tell me how wrong I am, but I think he must. Is he the most successful of the Formula One drivers to get into a to get into a sports car? Because he's won it twice, isn't he? Yeah, um, and he, he must be. I mean, there were back in the day. I mean, guys like sort of Phil Hill, uh, who was a world champion, who won it at least twice, maybe three times. Um, but yeah, generally speaking. Um, you know, nice guys tend not to make great Formula One drivers, do they? Mm. And I wonder how Fernando was changed by doing Le Mans, by doing the Dakar, where you clearly you've got a co-driver navigator next to you. Yeah. You have to work as a team. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we see this reformed character in Alonso at Aston Martin today because of his experiences with Toyota. But it's possible, isn't it? It's possible, yeah. Um, so our mate Jethro Bovingdon was competing this weekend in the N24. He was in a BMW M4 GT4. I think he had a bit of a bruising weekend. He hit the barriers at one point oh. in the race. Uh, he was clearly gutted. Yeah. But he brilliantly described the N24 as like walking a tightrope for 24 hours. Yes. Because you have to be on the very edge, right on the limit, without ever stepping over and falling off. Because if you're not on that edge, you're just not going fast enough. And it's, it's such a, you know, I've never done the N24. I've done some VLN. So I've raced at the Nürburgring. And even... And in fact, no, I have raced in the wet, there in the wet once, but to do all that, to just to race at the Nürburgring when there are maybe 160, 170 other cars in the race, massive, massive differentiation in performance between the front and the back of the grid. Yeah. Just to do that for a couple of stints yeah. is absolutely exhausting. And I've been honest about this before, and I will always say it's track. It's probably the only track that I have enjoyed having raced on more than I enjoyed racing mm. on it. It's a thing that when you're in your car on the way back to the airport, you look back and go, well, that that worked. Mm. Proud to survive that. But you're not out there thinking, whoopee, oh. I'm having a great... Well, I'm oh. not. I know some people do. People you know, people are braver than me. You know, guys like you know, Dickie... I think Dickie Meaden's done it like nine times or something. Yeah, but even he tweeted over the weekend, um, glad to have done it, glad not to be doing it anymore. Yeah. And it's that tightrope that you're talking about. And even, you know, in, in, in the sort of six-hour races that I've done, uh, you are so aware of that. And the idea of being out there in the dark and in the rain mm. in a slow car. I mean, GT4 cars probably, Jethro cars probably, was probably midfield, wasn't it? Which mm. would have been so much more helpful than the, some of the stuff that I was in. Um, but even so, out there, middle of the night, pouring down, down with rain, it's, you know, it's just not somewhere that I want to be. No, no, I actually don't fancy it at all. And... So the N24 in particular, it's a feat of skill, judgment, but also concentration. Those stints in the night, the speed differential, it, when you really stop and think about it, it is staggering what the fastest drivers there are capable of. They are superheroes. Yeah. Um, so we had <clears throat> dinner last week with Audi Sport Yes. in London, and you and I were sat next to the MD of Audi Sport, Dr. Sebastian Grams, mm. lovely guy. Yeah. Um, and... The next morning, he was flying out to the N24. Yes. Um, and so we got chatting with him. We were talking about... They didn't have a great weekend, did they? No, they didn't. No, I think their top car came sixth or seventh. Yeah. Um, they, but they won it last year. They did. So they know what it takes. Yeah. They have the Absolutely. car. They know what yep. it takes. And the bit that... We were ch- talking to him, and the bit that really amazed me was the detail that they go into, um, the, the lengths that they go into to win this thing. For instance... Audi Sport has a team of meteorologists at the circuit. There's one based in the paddock. Yeah. And then there are eight more dotted around the circuit. And they're mobile. They've got scooters. So they can get around a little bit. Yeah. It is their job basically just to look up. And presumably you can, you, you can see them because they're all the ones standing there with their fingers in the air. Probably. Just staring at the clouds. <laughs> 
and it, it's and they've got all the radar and all that stuff, haven't yeah. they? But there's nothing quite like a pair of eyes on the sky. And they're not just Audi Sport people who have been told look out for this kind of. They're meteorologists. Yeah, they're experts. They're, they're professionals. Yeah. So they can yeah. they can read yeah. the the sky like you. Yeah, they're not Audi employees. These are professional meteorologists yeah. who have been retained by Audi for the weekend to go yeah. and tell them what's going to happen. And so they can look at clouds coming in and know with a real degree of certainty. Yeah. Which cloud is about to dump a load of rain on the circuit? Yeah, and and of course you need that kind of insight at the N twenty four specifically because it's such a long lap. Yeah. If you are on the wrong tyres for a lap in changeable weather, a single lap, your race is probably over. Well, and that's you know at best, at worst, yeah. you're not coming back. Yeah, yeah, because it can get so wet there. Yeah. You know, you, and there, 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 are, there are these clips, aren't they? Where suddenly it's literally as if someone's just emptied a bath on the circuit. Mm, mm. Um, and you know, if you're on slicks, I can remember standing in the pits at Le Mans in 2001, start of 2001, where it just chucked it down. And David Coulthard was standing next to me. He won the race. Uh, he won his class in 1993 on a Jaguar XT220, and then been disqualified over some technicality. But he knew what he was talking about. And all the cars were coming in for wets and i said to him, how bad would it be out there if you're in slicks in the mm. prototype and he said worse than you can possibly imagine and i said what like slower than if you're in a road car and he just laughed he said so much slower than in a road car you know you'd think you you'd think you'd parked jesus yeah there was an n24 a few years ago um i think 0807 something like that where everyone was on the grid you know is 10 minutes to the start of the race and then just the clouds the heavens opened and stair rods just <laughs> And the circuit flooded. And um, I think they had to delay the start of the race. But it just demonstrates how quickly it can turn there. Mm. In those mountains, in the Eiffel, it yeah. can just... And as you say, such a long lap. You get it wrong. Yeah. Even, if the car, even if the car does make it back, somebody else who's on wets could just put, well, an amount of time on you. You're never going to recover in the rest of the race. Mm. It is staggering. So that's a team of meteorologists. I was amazed by that. Now... If you're going to try and win one of these races, Le Mans in 24, any 24-hour race, <clears throat> because they're such long races, because you're doing so many laps, you really have to be going as fast as you can the entire time. And to illustrate that point, imagine losing one second a lap to the competition at the N24. Yeah. One second. And how easy would it be to lose one second? Maybe in two or three corners, you're a tiny bit more cautious than the other bloke in the other car. Yeah. Or you're a tiny bit more hesitant getting past traffic. Yeah. If you lose a second a lap at the N24, because you're doing 160-something laps, that's almost three minutes at the end of the race. This year, two and a half minutes covered the top four. <laughs> so you cannot lose a second a lap in oh, 15 Bennett. miles. Two and a half minutes covered the top four. Yeah. That's unbelievable. At Le Mans, a second a lap is six minutes. Yeah. So a second a lap is almost two laps. Yeah. Yeah. Over the course of the race. Yeah. You're one second a lap. You'll be two down. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And actually that's you know, that's you know, when these cars can now be driven flat out, can you imagine if you are a pro driver and you get these particularly in what they used to call GTM, where you've got, you know, a wealthy owner who'll be a really by any standards, a really, really good yeah. driver, in with a couple of pros. But he's just a couple of seconds, mm. which over a long, long lap, I think Lamore's like an eight point three mile yeah. lap is, you know, a couple of seconds over that lap is like half a second around... You'd be delighted, wouldn't you? If that was you, you'd be delighted. Half a second off the pros, you'd be delighted. But if you're the pros, you're sitting there thinking, come on, mate. Get on with it. 
you know, you're going to lose a something. So that driver in the car, if he, if he does a third of a race, or even does a quarter, he could lose you a lap mm. just by being that tiny, tiny bit slower than you. Mm. And that is so often the margin of victory. Mm. It is amazing. And you see, you understand then why the fastest cars in any 24-hour race are ruthless in getting past yeah. traffic. Yeah. They can't afford to sit no, behind and, you and, in an And that's why occasionally you get those massive accidents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like the one that Anthony Davidson had, one like Alan McNish had. Yeah. You know, you approach, you've got to get past. And the team's watching on the pit wall. Yeah. They, they can see, they know when you've hesitated behind a slower car. And they're probably on the radio going, what happened there? I so just, do that again. just don't want that kind of pressure, do you? No. So, so, so what do you need? You obviously need a car that's going to get round. Yeah. You need teammates who are going to be able to get it round. Um, you need an absolute... First, I can remember when... And I keep on talking about Ben, only because I was part of their team for mm. those three years they did Le Mans. And when the Yoast team came up, because Audi didn't have a works team in 2003, so this was the third year of the Bentley project, and it was the year that they won it. And so, basically, Yoast got lent to Bentley mm. for that year. And you know the team who'd been running up to to, to me, I couldn't have I couldn't have faulted them at all. But then the Yoast team came out, and you could just see it mm. was a different level. Mm. Um, it was it was astonishing how how good those guys were, and they were so professional and so businesslike. And you know, it is not a coincidence that the Bentley that won that race spent less time in the pits than any other car in the history of the race. Mm. Mm. I was that's tempted, what you need to do I was tempted to say one of the things you need to win a 24 hour race is a dose of good luck and probably there's some truth in that but you look at the teams that do win and they win consistently and it's no fluke is it that they keep knocking out wins the way Audi did the way Porsche has in the past well, the way I mean, certain teams at the end 24 I mean, let, let I mean let's just look at Porsche for a moment you know Porsche never won Le Mans through a technological advantage mm. They won Le Mans by being very cute with the rules mm. at times. Uh, absolutely fair enough. Nobody ever Im- imagined they'd homologate 25 917s. They did. Uh, but 917 had a smaller engine than the Ferrari. It had two valves per cylinder, not four valves per cylinder, but it still developed more power. If you look at the 956 and the 962, monocoque car with ground effect. Porsche had never done a monocoque car. It had never done a car with ground effect. had a flat six engine in it, which mm. is the last thing in the world you mm. want if you're trying to do a ground effect car. Mm. And yet they still went and did it. Um, and it is, I, th- I think the problem is, if you're trying to identify the secret to winning Le Mans, the real problem is that there isn't one. You've just, in mm. every single mm. area, you've just got to be better than everybody. You've got mm. to think harder, think smarter. Um, from the moment you sit down to design the car to the last lap of the race. And if you don't do that, someone else will. So all of this demonstrates exactly how difficult it is to win one of these races. Yeah. And if it's a difficult thing to do, clearly it can go very badly wrong. Yes. Um, in so many ways. Yes. In so many ways. Uh, how many examples do you want? Let's have them all. Oh. We, let's start from the beginning, shall we? Well, should we start on the very first race? Go on then. 1923. Um, there was a privateer Bentley. It was uh, the only British car in the race. And it was the quickest car in the race. It got fastest lap. Uh, but they hadn't prepped it properly. And the track in those days was sort of part gravel, part cinders, mm. part road. And it was just a complete mess. And they got a whole a stone went through the fuel tank because they hadn't protected the fuel tank. And so, <laughs> um, so the driver, John Duff, got out of the car, ran four miles down the track to the pits mm. and went, sorry, guys, we've got a problem. At which stage his co-driver, a bloke called Frank Clement, stole a bicycle, cycled the wrong way around the track, yeah. 
he did say it was utterly terrifying <laughs> on a bicycle on the track not on a you know on a sort of feeder road right? yeah. on the track with the traffic with the, with the race cars coming the other way got back to the bentley repaired the fuel leak um from the whole tank some say with bacon others say with chewing gum but whatever he, he repaired it got the car back to the pit and by which stage they lost too much time um but then they came back the following year with a properly prepped car and 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 won the race yeah so that's how yeah so the following year actually the, another way you could not win them all although they did manage to do it this time <laughs> when they came in for their final fuel stop um they couldn't get one of the wheels off to change the tyres. And there was a bloke called Nobby Clark, who was their chief mechanic, who, who maintained to his, di- to his dying day, this was because the French had sabotaged the car. <laughs> the French. The French. <laughs> and that something like a darning needle had been jammed in there. Yeah. Um, anyway, they did get it off and they got the new one back on and they went off, on the, and they went off and they won the race. But yes, sabotage is probably one of the rarer mm. reasons to not win them all. Yeah, but um, so, yeah. yeah um, so... 1952, Pierre Levesque. So, um, Pierre Levesque, sadly, is the bloke who's made most famous for the appalling accident that took place at Le Mans in 1955. But he's also got a claim to fame for being the person who came closest ever to winning Le Mans solo. Yeah. Gosh. So, he did... Wow. Yeah, he did 23 hours on his own. He said, his justification for this, because you can imagine how amused his co-driver was, that he could... Here, something was wrong with the engine, mm. and only he had the mechanical sympathy to see it through. Um, I don't know whether that was true or not, but that, that, that is certainly what I understand his excuse to be. Um, and then the irony being that he was so exhausted after 23 hours, he just, I think he just wrong slotted or something um, yeah. and blew it to bits. Yeah. And that was the end of that. Oh, gosh. That would be an extraordinary thing, wouldn't it? But if he'd done yeah. what. Louis Rosier had done two years earlier. Now, Louis Rosier won a Lago Talbot in 1950. Okay, and he did all but two laps himself. Okay, all but two laps. Yeah. But he had the common sense when he was absolutely knackered yeah. to get out of the car, put his son in, yeah. Jean Louis, for two laps while he went off, sorted himself out, had something to eat, probably went to the bathroom, yes, um, shook his head, got back in the car, and finished the race, and won it. It's almost a shame that he did that, isn't it, really? Yeah, but, you know, but, you know, m- well, maybe, but maybe, maybe if he, he hadn't finished, done it yeah. and he hadn't just got out of the car, mm. um, then, you know, and there are, if you look at the people who so nearly did it solo, so, you know, Raymond Sommer in uh, 1932, um, Luigi Canetti in 1949, you know, the people who succeed in doing huge stints at Le Mans just don't do it completely there's only been one are we going to talk about eddie hall's bentley i here? think we should yeah i think we should yeah. okay so there's only ever been one documented example and it, and i've looked into this in such detail i have no doubt at all that this is true um that in 1950 driving his 16 year old bentley eddie hall did the race solo mm. he came eighth so, he so he's win. the only person to finish he is it, the only yeah. person that i'm aware of who's yeah. ever successfully completed Le Mans on his own um and yeah, I went out uh, a few weeks ago to America and drove the car, which has exists today pretty much in the form that it was when he did the race. Um, but I think he is the absolute prime example of an exception proving the rule. Mm. Um, I mean, an extraordinary achievement to do what he did. We'll be publishing your story on um, that car yeah. this week, I think. Excellent. Um, so that is coming up. Well, there you go. So that that's... <laughs> 
If you're going to win a 24 hour race, you probably need teammates, particularly these days, don't you? Are we going to, are we going to briefly sing as we're sort of in that era, touch from 1955? Yeah, because, you know, we're talking about how badly wrong can it go yeah. trying to win a 24 hour race. And yeah. actually, I mean, we're being quite glib and flippant, aren't we? But the reality is it can go really disastrous. Well, it did. It did. It did once, um, and you know everybody will know about the Lamar disaster and the eighty-something people um, who died. Um, and if you look into it, there are, there are so many people who have the finger has been pointed at. You know, people point the finger at Pierre Levesque, um, who was the chap who went up the back of Austin of Lance Macklin's Austin Healy and went into the crowd, pointing out that Fangio got through the gap just before, and Fangio was fine. Uh, and say that Levesque was an older man, which he was, um, his reactions weren't as good, and so on and so forth. Other people have pointed the finger at Lance Macklin, who literally swerved out into the middle of the road, and then the back of his car became a launch pad. Mm-hmm. And other people have pointed the finger at Mike Hawthorne, who was the reason that Lance Macklin swerved out into the middle of the road, because he overtook him in his Jaguar, um, and then dived into the pits at the last moment, standing on the brakes. Mm-hmm. Um I, I've always thought that it, Mike Hawthorne thought it was his fault. He came in. He came in the following lap God. and said, "I've killed all these people. I'm never mm. going to race a car again." Um, and if you look at it, he certainly started the accident. You know, if you can, you know, there are so many what ifs. If such a person hadn't done this, such a person. Yeah. Hadn't, but the trigger was he. This was back in the days when the pits. There was no pit lane. Mm. The pits were just the side of the track mm. on the side on the race course, and so he overtook the Austin Healey, and then. He stood on the brakes as hard as he could, and maybe Lance Macklin should have been more aware or whatever. But anyway, he just pulled out, and you know, if you, if you can point to one thing which if it hadn't happened, there would have been nothing at all. Um, that was it. Um, but I think somebody once said, I wish I could remember who it was. Somebody once said that the accident was caused by Mike Hawthorne, but the tragedy was caused by the track design. Well, that there you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it was the fact that there was the way the track curved at the time. There was, you know, it was it was fairly unsighted. Um, having the pits as part of the track was bonkers. Mm-hmm. Having the crowd where it was was, and and on and on and on. Um, and I think that's probably the fairest summation of it that mm-hmm. I have I've ever heard. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. The sad thing was there will be accidents in racing, but. The spectators should never be in danger in peril. No, that is an absolute, to me, that is a red line. Yeah. You know, anything that endangers, you know, the public is, is you know, I've, I've always been, as people listen to this podcast, I've been always very happy that people um, who take risks in racing cars know that they're doing that and mm. therefore accept the possible consequences of doing that. But it, it's a completely different situation with, with spectators. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, so how else can it go wrong then trying to win a 25 race? Um, well, so it can, it can go wrong like it went wrong for Nissan in 1990. Um, they turned up with that ridiculous car with 1,100 horsepower. I think I'll be amazed if there's anyone listening to this who hasn't seen Mark Blundell's yeah. qualifying lap in that car. Yeah. I mean, what an incredible lap that was. And that car was so much faster than anything else out there. And there were lots of them. Um, and you know, I have heard it said, I don't know whether it's true, but I've heard it said that Nissan had their victory literature printed before the race. Well, they're certainly their T-shirts. Were there. And, you know... They all broke. Mm. They Gosh. all just broke. I mean, they turned up with a car that was so much faster than that. I think they must have thought, well, we, A, we've got such a performance advantage that we can turn it down a bit if we need to. B, we've got so many cars out there. Um, well, we're just going to go and mm. cruise it. And, and, and they didn't. Um, they broke. It's, um, you know, it, it can be... Look at, look at Ford. Um, you know, we all seen Le Mans 66 and, you know, Ford beats Ferrari and, you know, hooray and everything else. You know, there wasn't much mention of the fact that they had two previous attempts at that race and mm. failed first and, and failed on both occasions. The 64, they came with a prototype. It was, it was a very new car um, and it didn't have enough power and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the, the finished thing. But in 1965, they came with seven litre engines, big blocks, um, and they absolutely should have won the race. Mm. Um, but they didn't because they hadn't thought hard enough about the effect of all that power and extra weight on the rest of the car and the stress of the driveline that they broke and, you know, and a privateer for actually all for all the works for Harry's broke as well. But, um, you know, there weren't any seven litre privateer Fords in the race, but there were, you know, privateer Ferraris and one of those came through mm. to win. So it's, it's just a question of, you need so many things, don't you? You need to run the perfect race, but you also need some luck. And I know we're going to talk about the ultimate example of yeah. bad luck yeah. in not winning Le Mans. Um, probably, um, in a minute, but also you can win Le Mans through luck of a kind. Mm. If you think of Mazda in 1991, they were completely unfancied. Um, it was an IMSA car. Um, no Japanese manufacturer, despite Toyota's efforts, had ever won the race before. Now, if you remember 1991, it was this really, really weird race where it was meant to be the start of the three and a half litre formula. Um, where and and what they did is there were so few cars that were ready they allowed old group c cars um to race but they gave them tiny fuel tanks and massive restrictors um and yet they were still much quicker than the in qualifying than the three and a half liter cars but they said you can't start in the top 10 so what you had is you had a car qualifying in 11th place which was like eight seconds quicker than the car on pole it was nuts. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all the three and a half litre cars got to go first. Mm. And there were only two three and a half litre cars of any note, which were a couple of Peugeots. Um, and th- it was meant to be a race, I guess, between sort of Porsches and Jaguars. And they all just thought, well, they'll, they'll go off and break, so we won't chase them. And the Peugeots went off and broke. Mm. Um, and then nobody really saw the Mazda coming. Um, but because it was an IMSA car, because it wasn't a Group C car... It didn't have to carry the extra weight. It didn't have to have the smaller fuel tank. And it was never the quickest car out there, but it did the fewest pit stops. And suddenly, it was just kind of like, over time, people were going, well, oh. Oh, 
Yes. Oh, blimey. And it was because it was the exception to the rules of all the other prototypes in the race. I suddenly thought, well, maybe. And then Johnny Herbert did an amazing final stint. He was so exhausted, he didn't actually appear. I think he was in the medical centre when the other two drivers, who which were, who were they? Bertrand Gascher and Volker Wiedler, I think, were on the podium. Um, he didn't even make it there. So, I mean, that's a, that's a good example of the rule book playing into, mm. into your hands and, mm. yeah, and winning a a race that way um, yeah so slight circumstance comes into it sometimes doesn't it and you can inherit a victory as well if the leading car or cars breaks or you can be so unbelievably cute with the, the okay the ultimate example of winning Le Mans by being cute with the rules was the Dower in yeah. 1994 this was a Porsche 962 which under these under the regs at the time should have been rendered completely uncompetitive because it was a Group C car and, you know, as we discussed, it had you know, a small fuel tank, massive restrictor. Um, not a competitive car. If you wanted a competitive car, because they wanted GT cars to win, you needed to have a, you know, a car like a Ferrari F40 or, mm. a, you know, a road car, a McLaren 911. Well, no, McLarens weren't there. Uh, they were the following year, weren't they? But, you know, Porsche 911, Bugatti EB110, I think, were there. And then you could have a big fuel tank and, and, and a big restrictor. And so the Porsche 962 just shouldn't have been eligible to win because it wasn't derived from a road car. And then this bloke, Jochen Dauer, decided to make a road car out of the 962. This mm. was all done with the connivance of Porsche. It was effectively a works entry, even though it was never dressed up as such. I mean, Norbert Singer was leading the team. So having made a 962 road car, you could then turn it into a racing car. So they just had to make one? Yeah, just made, they just had to make one. So they made... Yeah. And there is a 960, there is the Dower 962, and I think they might have actually done a few afterwards, but it's got, you know, it's got leather and air mm. conditioning and that sort of thing. But they turned a racing car into a road car just so they could turn it back into a racing car again. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... And the thing was, is, but the rule makers should see that coming, shouldn't they? Exactly. You can't blame Porsche for no, that. No. You know, they were seven seconds a lap quicker than any other GT car <laughs> in the race. Yeah. And they were slower than the prototypes because the design was comprom- well, quite compromised. But it didn't matter. They had a 120-litre fuel tank and all the other prototypes were 80 litres. They had a 50% more fuel capacity. Mm. So they just, they just trundled around and cashed and collected. Well, on the topic of being cute with the rules, and particularly in the GT category, how about just sandbagging for the two or three races before uh, on? don't. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't it's think sad, we, I don't it? think we can be definitive about this because they because so we're talking about Ford and the GT and the what the Ford GT in mm. 2016, 16, yeah. 50 years after they won it in 66, um, and you know we have friends at Ford who will deny this, and so I'm not saying at all that this was the case, but it was certainly the impression given that they found a turn of speed at Le Mans in 2016 which their performance of the season to that date had not suggested was, mm. was likely. Mm. Um, and then, lo and behold, they went and won the, won, won the GT category. And that was when Frank Valliser, the, the boss of the racing department at Porsche, he did that press conference in tears. Yeah. He was so gutted. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, his views on it were uh, probably quite clear. We don't have to second-guess those, do we? But no. it is a shame that it's open to, potentially open to manipulation like that. And do you know what? Equally, you and I were at Le Mans as guests of Aston Martin um, only they a couple of years ago. They got completely stuffed. Stuffed out of sight. They qualified on pole in the class. Yeah. Which you think is a good thing. Yeah. Great, we got pole. They were probably excited. They were celebrating. Only for the ACO, the, the regulators, the rulemakers, to go... Uh, oh, okay. Well, because you're so fast, we're going to change your balance performance, and now you're slower. Yeah, 
It's and in the race, they came nowhere. I, I, they, they, I did, don't they, they did also have a problem with tyre consumption, I remember. But yes, but it, it, certainly, wasn't, it certainly wasn't helped by that. Mm. And the other thing I find, and I'm not talking about any particular team or race or, or event here, but if you do, do decide that in order to gain yourself a favourable balance of performance, which you know, is, is this measure which you know, uh, the organisers have to try and level out the field so you get good racing and they can, they can add weight or they can make your restrictors more, there are various things they can do to even out the performance across the field. If in order to get a good, a favourable sort of outcome from that, you effectively throw the mm. first two races of the season. Mm. What about the spectators who pay good money mm. to go and see their races? Mm. And actually, what they don't realise is what they're watching is just a smoke and mirrors job. It's yeah. pantomime. Yeah. You're not watching. And, and I find that very difficult. Mm. And I know that the rules are the rules and you can't blame teams for doing their best under the rules to get the the best outcome possible and the truth is which you know everybody knows is there's not a team on the grid of the world endurance championship who wouldn't throw every single round of that championship if it meant they could win them all yeah lamar is more important than all the other rounds put together mm, much more yeah. um and so if that means compromising if you to win lamar can they be blamed for that well, it's, 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 it's a sort of it's an ethical question, is it? I mean, you know, does the spirit of the rules even play a part? Mm. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, we've been giggling about the dower. That didn't come anywhere near to the spirit mm. of the rules, but mm. we think that's quite funny. Mm. So maybe if Ford did compromise mm. the performance of those cars, maybe, maybe the view is, well, that's the, what the rules allowed them to do. Yeah. And they were just getting the best possible result in the, race, in the one race that meant most of them. Perhaps they were clever. And if that meant that spectators at Spa and other rounds before that um, were short-changed, Ford would say, well, talk to the rule makers. It's not mm. our fault. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think it's very very fair to say that. Yeah. Um, okay, so back to 2016. Oh, God. Were you there? I wasn't. No, I, I, was, was. I, was watching, I was. I was watching the live feed, looking at Twitter. Oh, dear. Yeah. Extraordinary. Kazuki Nakajima. Yeah. So this was Toyota's race all day long. They had tried so hard for so long. Um and it was the TSO 50 and he was leading the race and it was absolutely fine and then it wasn't it was but it wasn't quite the last lap because the problem happened before the last lap started um, but then it went on to the last mm. lap so the car came to a halt with I wrote it down actually I thought I had no I didn't I think it came to a halt with three minutes and 25 seconds of the race remaining after almost 24 hours. After 23 hours and 56 minutes and 35 seconds. Yeah. Ah. And what was even worse is although they somehow got it going again and it crawled around the lap, it took, I think the last lap took 11 minutes and there was a certain minimum time in which you had to complete the final lap and it wasn't within it. So they weren't even classified. Oh, so it's not like they came second or third? No, or... didn't even get on the podium. Didn't, they, weren't even, they, they didn't finish the race. Yeah. They were unclassified at the end. And that is the, you know, I can remember I was also there when in 1990, Jesus Pereira in the Brun Porsche, there was a private end in 1960, 1990, 1962, was such an old car. First did a race as a 956 in 1982, so mm. like eight seasons earlier. Um and this car, it wasn't leading, but it was second, and it was closing in on the lead Jaguar, which had a problem. Um, and we were all going, oh, blimey, 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 this old car, amateur car, um, it could just do it. And then, I think it was on the last lap, 
smoke. Mm, and he came out, he got out of the car, and when they got him back to the pits and his team manager was like, he literally just collapsed into his arms really? in tears. And it was just it was just terrible to watch. But nothing like as terrible as that Toyota. It was just... Um, and I think it was... Who was running the Toyota? It was a huge show now. Whoever was running the Toyota team, the first thing he did was go over to the Audi team and congratulate them on their mm, victory. Mm, was classy. Porsche. Don't know. Yeah. Classy. But do you know what? In, in a sense, it's perhaps surprising it doesn't happen more often because with minutes to go, the car is going to be at its most frail. Yes. And you cannot design them to last for 48 hours because they'll be too heavy, too bulky, yeah. too slow. Yeah. But they do try. I mean, back I think they do it less now, but I can remember when Peugeot were trying to win it sort of 10 years back. I mean, they would do a number, I don't know, maybe seven or eight tests, the shorter of which will be 24 hours. Mm. They do 36-hour tests. Mm. Yeah. And they go round and yeah. round and round. They go and hire somewhere like Ricard, which is the closest place where they're straight long enough to sort of mimic what you get at Le Mans. Mm. And they'd, they'd go for a day and a half and try to break the car. Mm. Well, there are so many stories of cars which will do 36 hours on a test without... Yeah breaking sweat but somehow but somehow get to Le Mans and that's the funny thing about Le Mans people go oh yes Le Mans you know, you know you, it, it's a fickle race it's a and I most of me thinks that's all just cobblers it's a race it's a circuit you know um, there's no such thing as luck or chance or anything else but sometimes the best laid plans just fall up. I mm. mean in 1987 I think there were 10 rounds in the World Endurance Championship that year maybe 11 the Jaguar XJR8 was so far and away the quickest car in that season. It won every single round. Yeah. Apart from one. <sighs> Le Mans. Le Mans. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know. It's a it's a it's a funny old it's a funny old race, and, and I'm so sad I'm not going to be there this year. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm taking a thing called a holiday, which is mm, interesting, yeah, fairly. Um, strange thing for me to be doing but uh, and it's the only time that i can be away so uh, i'm not going to be there but um who do you think is going to win well um this is the year that we've all been looking forward to isn't it yes. because we've got a handful of manufacturers in the hypercar category now yeah ferrari um, back after 50 years ferrari um porsche uh who, this is, oh, there's a whole load of them isn't there peugeot um notably toyota. toyota and it does look as though but toyota have been running their hypercar for a couple of years now yeah and as we recorded this they have won every round of the yeah. championship this year so they've got to be going in as favourites who will the ACO want to win there what are you suggesting well the fairy tale ending and I'm you know I think anybody would think this is that on the you know on their 100th anniversary race in the 50th anniversary since Ferrari were last there mm. that a Ferrari would, would, would win the race mm. um, and <laughs> <laughs> What can I say? Um, I just hope it's a good fair fight. Let's just hope for a great race. Yeah. No question marks over um, any subterfuge or underhand tactics. Let's just hope for a brilliant, brilliant race. Um, there we go. That's what it takes to win a 24-hour race, and that's how or badly... Not, or not win Or one. not. That's how badly wrong it could go in the pursuit of doing so. Um, okay, so we're not doing a listener question this week. And this week. Instead... Um, we're doing a What Goes Up, um, and I speak to Darren from JBR Capital. A couple of weeks ago, in episode 159, we looked at how the mainstream car manufacturing sector is recovering 
after COVID, after the chip shortage, um, the war in Ukraine, several other stresses. Now, um, with your help, Darren, um, we're looking at what's going on at the prestige end of the market. And headlines are, well, for three storied marks in particular, it's good news, isn't it? It's very good news if your name is Lamborghini, Porsche or Ferrari. <laughs> they are churning these cars out the factories and reporting record profits. I mean, yeah. just to set the scene a little bit. And then, you know, um, Lamborghini's turnover is up 22.8%. Profits up 35%. They've got full, uh, oh, well, actually, it's, they say it's almost full uh, order books. For 2024, they're not even mentioning 2023, so I think we'll just assume that they're full. Yeah. Um, Porsche the same, increasing 25% in profits, um, and deliveries to customers of new cars up to 80,767 deliveries. That's up a uh, whopping 18% from the same period last year. Wow. Um, Ferrari, very similarly, at 27% increase in profits, so manufacturers are having it off. Blimey. Yeah, those three certainly are. And actually, in the case of um, Porsche and Ferrari, um, they've both said they will be increasing prices this year by a handful of percentage points. Um, and it's wh- what does it speak to? I mean, it, it paints a clear picture, doesn't it? Certainly for those three. It paints a little bit of a murky picture, but go on, tell me why you think it paints well, a clear for, picture. For, OK, for those three, for those three, it's a clear picture, even though there continue to be factors weighing on car manufacturing, semiconductor shortage, all the others, COVID, war in Ukraine, you know, they, these things are sort of still rumbling on, high interest rates as well. Um, those three marks in particular having a, a, a jolly old time. Uh, if you're a manufacturer, you're having a jolly old time, and they are obviously even in the, in the premium uh, sector the the cream of the crop really uh, yeah absolutely Rolls Royce is, is going to be in there as well but yeah. some pretty the the top brands as you would expect um, and yes prices are going up by about four to eight percent uh, to cover higher production costs you know mm. due to inflation uh, the big inflation uh, story that everyone talks about um, but for me. I say it's a little bit murky in in reality because, yes, manufacturers are having a great time, but this tells the story in new cars, new Mm. cars only, and it doesn't really tell you what is going on in the whole of market, which, of course, is dominated by by the used car sector, which, you know, there are multiple times of used cars sold compared to the new cars and the lucky individuals that get hold of those wonderful limited edition Ferraris and Lamborghinis, etc. Um, so that's where they're making all their, their money. So if you just looked at the new car sales market, that would potentially imply that the wealthy customer bases aren't really too bothered about inflation and the higher cost of borrowing, etc. And it the, the story trundles on. However, however, I say, when you go and look in the used car market, um, in the volume market, uh, in the low, low, lower cost brands, um, that continues to be very strong throughout 2023 with demand continue to outstrip supply, um, with demand up about 8% and supply down uh, about 9%. So all going very well. But when you start looking in the premium market, and Auto Trade have done a bit of a study on this. Um, 
the demand um, has increased in the used car market by about 10%, but the supply is now outstripping demand, wow. uh, which is very exacerbated in the used market. And for cars that cost over £150,000, uh, Auto Trader had 3,194 cars listed in April compared to 2,252 in April last year. So there's 42% more premium cars being advertised on Auto Trader than there were last year. And cars are taking longer to sell. It's now taking dealers on average 80 days to sell a premium car, which is 24 days more than last year. So is it all rosy? Is it all going well? Mm. Uh, it certainly is in the new car market, um, but I would dare hazard a guess that in the used car market, the, 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 the bolts on the wheels are coming loose just a little bit. Wow. Uh, I'm not saying it's all going... Uh, downhill fast, but certainly you need to look at the whole of market picture to, to truly understand, um, what's going on. So I did take the opportunity to speak to quite a few of the independent dealers in the market, which I think would be fair to say are a good bellwether test of what's going on. And indeed, most of the ones I talk to are reporting that it is hard to sell cars. It's taking long to sell cars. There's, they've slowed down buying stock, um, just being a little bit more cautious, um, slightly worried values may fall further than they expect, and you know, just a bit of a cautionary tale going mm. on there. Uh, I don't, I, I don't personally think that prices will uh, plummet or anything in the luxury market, but certainly as cars take longer to sell, dealers start slowing down buying stock it's more difficult for individuals to sell their cars. And that's why you see listings going up on auto trader. Um, yeah. So interesting. I think that's, yeah, I think that's where we're at, but I, 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 I got asked the other day, well, do you think this is because of inflation and um, the higher cost of borrowing? Obviously everyone knows the, the interest rate story and the rapid rate, uh, uh, the rapid increase in rates over the last 12 months um, up until now, we've not seen that having any impact on wealthy customers or put them off from buying. And actually I don't think it is. I just think we're seeing a small slowdown. And I think it's because uh, we're going through a cycle of reaching saturation mm. and it tends to happen every five years or so. You know, customers get into that habit of changing the car, changing the car every 18 months, changing the next model, the next one, the next one up. And it gets to a point where sometimes people just say, you know, I've just had uh, enough of this for the minute and I'm going to just take a little breather. And I mm. personally think that it's more about that than inflation or interest rates. Mm. Do you know, that's why we like talking to you guys about this stuff, because it, you have insights that we don't have, particularly around the used car market. It is your job to know precisely what's going on, isn't it? Well, we, we like to think so. Um, but <laughs> uh, we, we've seen it in our own numbers. And, you know, we've we've been having record month after record month. And mm. certainly in um, in March, we paid out around £31 million pounds loans. It was an all time record for us in our eight year history. And then uh, April, April 
was hard to get going. I mean, we still paid out twenty five million pounds. So don't feel too sorry for us, but um, but we were hoping to do a little bit more than that. And again, ring around all my friends and all the other finance companies, saying, "What are you seeing? You know, um, what's going on? Uh, industry events as well." And it was all the same thing, struggling to see the month actually um, get going. Mm. I mean, you just see a little bit of malaise in the market. And I think that's a good word, malaise. Interesting. So now what's your, what's your instinct on this? Do you think it, for people who are in the market, who are looking to buy right now, does it mean that they, they might be getting good deals? Uh, I think there's definitely uh, better deals to be had out there. There's certainly mm. more choice of cars than there were before. So mm. perhaps you can be more picky on getting a better specification on your car, the right color that you wanted. Yeah. Uh, and you've got a bit more time to shop around. I mean, for the last few years, it has been quite difficult for customers because they would uh, see cars, make their minds up on them, and then finally, once they've made their mind up, actually the car's been sold, mm. and then you have to start all over again. So it is taking a bit longer for cars to sell. There's more choice. Um, so definitely a bit of a buyer's market in, in the used car sector. Uh, but again, if you want one of those lovely new Lamborghinis, Porsches or Ferraris, you're going to be waiting some time for them. And yeah, but you know, the one that is, um, got everyone talking in the last few months is electric cars in the EV market. Mm. And, um, the, 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 both the volume and the premium market have, uh, suffered significantly, um, in terms of, well, good news for consumers who want to buy an electric car, but, um, significantly impacted, you know, with prices falling around 18% year on year in April. Um, and supply is continuing to outpace demand by quite a bit. And this is the same in the premium market as the volume market. And, you know, everyone says, well, is that market finished? Is, are people going to adopt EV? Um, what's, what's actually going to happen? But I don't think so. I think it's just, um, a catch up and a realignment mm. in the market. I mean, when you look at the demand, demand is still increasing by about 15 to 20% um, month, uh, year on year. When you look at April, uh, I just think the market's got a little bit flooded with cars. Uh, certainly people like Tesla are making moves to reduce the cost of consuming, yeah. reducing their prices and everyone else has had to follow. Um, and there's a lot of cars out there. So I think EV is still popular. And, um, you know, it's, it's just going to happen, isn't it? Mm, it is. Unfortunately, I never said that. <laughs> but it's never going to be a straight line, is it? It's, it's, it's going to come in waves and it's kick up and down a little bit. And that's just the way it is. Well, um, we need to do this again in a couple of months. And you'll fill us in again on um, what the latest is. Because it's, it's fascinating to get a proper um, detailed, in-depth insight into what is going on, particularly in the used car market, because it affects all our listeners. You know, it's important stuff. Yeah, well, as I said at the start, it, you could you can look at one small sector and look at the profits. So yeah. these these luxury manufacturers and yes, manufacturers are having a great time, but you need to look at the whole of market and and just see what's going on. So, um, you know, I do think it will pick up. I think it's just got to get that supply and demand element right, and it will find its natural place. Brilliant. Interesting stuff, Darren, and uh, thanks for coming on. We'll do it again. What Goes Up is sponsored this week by car finance specialist JBR Capital. We've been working with JBR Capital for a while now, and it's been a brilliant partnership for us. High-end car finance is all the company does. 
meaning it understands the car market and car buyers better than most. So before you buy your next sports car, supercar, classic car, luxury car, even a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. Visit jbrcapital.com or click the link in description. And this bit is important. Tell them the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.